Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. All right, you can take a seat. We'll go and get started now. We'll jump the gun. Well, my name is Jeremiah, and we are in uh, the second week of our Advent series. I'm filling in for Matt Cassidy. Uh, because he and our executive pastor, Ray Anderson, they took a team over to Israel, about, about 60 people. And, and in fact, right now, today, uh, they were in Jerusalem. They were on the Temple Mount, the place where the Holy Temple once stood and will one day stand again. Anybody else wish they were there with them? Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Man. Well, uh, Dorothy Sayers was, uh, she was an Eng- a British novelist. And uh, she was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford, and she was also a writer of detective fiction. And her most famous character uh, was a man named Lord Peter Whimsey, and he was a, a detective. He was uh, somebody who solved mysteries, and, and he was also a single man. And in the middle of all of these novels that uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote, there kind of out of nowhere appeared this woman, uh, a female character, and her name was Harriet Vane. And Harriet just so happened to be one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And she was also a writer of detective fiction. And Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey, they meet and they solve a few mysteries together. And and then they fall in love. And they get married and they spend the rest of their lives together. And some people say that Dorothy Sayers, this novelist, what she did... Is, is that she looked into this world she created, this world she dreamed up, and she saw this man who, who was so alone, and she fell in love with him. And so she wrote herself into the story so she could save this, this lonely soul. Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into her own story so that she could rescue this troubled man. And they marry, and they live happily ever after. What's amazing about the Christmas story is that God has actually done that very thing, hasn't he? The truth of Christmas, the truth of of Christmas night is that our Heavenly Father who who dreamed us up, who created us, and and who knew how how much we had rejected him and and run from him when he saw us and and when he saw how desperate and and troubled we were, what he did is, is he wrote himself into the story. He longed so deeply to, to love us and to rescue us that he wrote himself into the human story, into our lives. You see, the Christmas story, it's not a birth story. It's a love story. It's a story of romance. It's the story of how God refused to stay comfortably aloof from us when, when he looked at us and, and when he saw how lost and how broken we were. And, and just as important as the fact that God wrote himself into our story is, is how and where he shows up into our story. And we learn so much when we look at, at the way in which God wrote his son into the story. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. We, we discover this earth-shaking truth about the Lord of the universe when we look at how he came to us, when we look at the way he wrote this thing. And before we get to that, uh, I want you to consider just for a moment that you know, God, he could have chosen any time, any place, to any family to write his son into the story, right? I mean, he had every family, every continent, every era at his disposal. 
right? He could have made any choice that he'd wanted. And I can all but guarantee you that you and I, if we had made those choices ourselves, we would have made vastly different choices than God made. And yet, and yet God was showing us something fascinating about his character, something fascinating about himself in the way he chose to, to insert his son into our story, into our lives, into the human narrative. And, and that's what I want us to see today. I want to see that God is showing us something incredible about his character and actually also about us in the way, in the way his son gets written into this story. Okay, so, so let's do that. And, and, and first, first thing you see is that God, he had all of eternity to plan out the family that Jesus would be born into. Could have chosen any family, any couple that he wanted. And, and to tell you, if it were me, if I were the author of this story, you know, it would have been logical for uh, Jesus to be born into the home of an influential Jewish rabbi. Right? That, that would have uh, made some sense. It would have made some spiritual sense for sure. Or, or at the very least, if I was writing this, I might have written him into the home of a wealthy Roman senator. You know, someone who had good medical care and, and maybe some important political connections in Rome. That would have made a lot of sense too. But that's not what God chose, is it? When God looked at us and when he decided where to, to bring his son into the story, he, he made a, a, a decision, a choice very different from that. And we find that out in, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. If you want to turn over there, we're going to be in, in Luke 2 uh, today for the most part. And, uh, and I want you to see in verses 1 through 5, um, this family, this couple, see what we learn about them. This family that God would choose to write his son into. And, and I'm going to be using the New Living Translation mostly today just because uh, these passages are, are very familiar to a lot of us. But look at verses 1 to 5. I want, want, want you to see this family God chose. This is what Luke writes. He says, at that time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. And he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. What we see is that Jesus is written into the home of this anonymous couple. Right? That Mary, she was a high school freshman. And her fiancé, he's a woodworker. Nobody had ever heard of these people. No one even knew who they were. And then what's more is whispers of an illegitimate child aren't quite the first conversations I think we would want people to be having when, when the king of the heavens appears on earth, right? I mean, this is not how we would have written this story. But, but we also find out that Mary and Joseph, they're... They're not really financially stable either. In fact, you know, of course, we know Jesus was born in a feeding trough, but, but we also discover that Jesus, his parents, Mary and Joseph, they were downright destitute. You see, soon after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they take him to the temple in Jerusalem, and they offer a sacrifice there, just as God had instructed in the Old Testament for new parents to do. And, and this is what Luke says in verse 22 of chapter 2. He says, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. But what Luke doesn't tell us is that God had actually specified in Leviticus 12 that new parents, when they had a child, what they were supposed to bring to the temple was a year-old lamb and then either a dove or a pigeon. But there was this provision in the law that, that allowed the poorest of Jewish families 
to, if they couldn't afford a lamb, they could instead just bring two of those birds, two doves or two pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph do. They couldn't afford the lamb. They could only afford the two birds. And so that's what they bring. What Luke is telling us, what he's insinuating is this couple, they're trying to make ends meet. You know, they're, they're scratching by. They're just, they're just trying to get by financially. And yet this is the family that God would choose among all the families throughout history to have his son born into. And, and why, we ask? You know, what is it that God is telling us about himself and about us in the way he wrote his son into our story? What is the point of doing it this way? Well, it's not just his family. We also discover that, that, you know, of course, God had forever to plan out the the towns, the cities that Jesus would be born and raised in. And it could have been wherever he wanted, or he could have chosen wherever he wanted at any time, right? And, And what we see is he didn't choose Jerusalem, right, this city that was the center of Jewish life and worship. We probably would have chosen Jerusalem. He didn't choose a palace in Rome. The center of of power in in the first century. He didn't choose those two places. No, God chose two forgettable backwater towns for for his son to be born and raised in. And and you see that in verse 4. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. You see, Jesus, he wasn't born in a temple or a palace. No, he was born in Bethlehem, this tiny village of no more than a 1,000 people. And then he would be raised in Nazareth, a town so inconsequential that later on one of Jesus' disciples would ask, can can anything good come out of Nazareth? God chooses these two little towns that had no power, no influence, no significance whatsoever. You see, it'd be like if Jesus was born in Paris, Texas, instead of Paris, France. Or, or raised in New York, Texas, instead of New York City. And yes, there really is a New York in Texas. And yes, I'm sure they're pretentious there too. <laughs> These are not the decisions we would have made. It wouldn't have been a Bethlehem. It would not have been a Nazareth. But why, God? Why these two insignificant places, these two little towns? Why did you choose them? What were you telling us about yourself in the way that you wrote your son into the human story? You know, the places that he would be born and that he'd be raised. What are you telling us about yourself? But again, it wasn't just their family. It wasn't just his hometown and where he was raised. God also had all of eternity to figure out who was going to first be notified that, that God had shown up that Jesus was here, that he'd been born as a baby. Who would be first notified? Who would be the first visitors of Jesus after he was born? And again, if we were making the decision, there's a good chance that we might have chosen the high priest, right? That, that God would have come to the high priest and, and put him on notice, that, that the transcendent and holy God had now come down. He'd come close. And so the people of God would, would no longer need the high priest to be a mediator between them and God anymore. He wasn't necessary any longer. Jesus, God himself, was here. That's who we might have chosen. But that's not how God wrote the story, right? We see the shocking decision that God made about who would first be notified, who would be the first visitors of Jesus. And we we discover that in verses 8 to 12 and then 16. 
This is what Luke writes. He says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, just nearby. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And so they hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. You see, of all the people that God could have sent this angel announcement to, of all the people who he might have chosen to be the first visitors of his son, the last ones you and I would have chosen were shepherds. And the reason is because shepherds, they were considered socially and spiritually inferior. I mean, they really were looked at that way. Shepherds, they were on the lowest rung of the economic ladder. They were, had little to no education. I mean, they were excluded from much of society. In fact, a shepherd couldn't even be called as a witness in a court of law because they were considered untrustworthy. So if you were robbed and the only witness was a shepherd, didn't happen. But they weren't only barred from the courtroom. If a Jewish shepherd wanted to go to the temple in Jerusalem, he wanted to, to worship God there, he wouldn't have even been able to get into the front door. And the reason is because shepherds, they weren't allowed even near the temple because they dealt with, with sick and dead animals every day. And so they were considered permanently unclean, totally unfit to be in the temple, to be, to be able to worship God in, in, in Jerusalem, in that temple. And yet... After 400 years of, of not a single word from God, the first group, one of the first groups he will speak to is, is this group of social pariahs working the night shift who couldn't be trusted and who would have gotten icy stares if they had ventured too close to the temple. That's who God chooses. After 1,500 years of one man on one day each year, coming into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, these sheep herders are the, the honored guests, the ones that God will first invite into his presence and encounter Jesus, that little baby, God himself, in a cave in Bethlehem. What's God telling us about himself? Why did he write the story this way? And if that's not enough, God then makes them his first publicist. He says in, in verse 17 through Luke, he says, After seeing him, the shepherds, they told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. You bet they were astonished. Probably as much by who was delivering this message as the message itself. I mean, really? Shepherds? There wasn't anyone more reliable, anyone more respectable that God could have gotten this message out through? Yes, everyone. Actually, just about everyone was more reliable and more respectable than a shepherd. God, why, why this way? Why did you write your son into the story in this way? Born to a couple of impoverished Unknown adolescents raised in the boondocks. And then the first witnesses and, and live reporters of his birth will be these undignified shepherds. What are you telling us about yourself? 
Here's what God was telling us. One of the, one of the truths he was in, insinuating that he was communicating to us about himself is that he came for us all. He came for us all. God is telling us that Jesus hadn't come for some of the people. Jesus hadn't only come for the spiritual elite. He hadn't come for those who, who were doing a great job for God. You see, that's what every other faith teaches. If you are morally, if you're spiritually strong, if you can keep up, if you can pedal fast enough, then you get in. But Christianity is different. And we know that because when God showed up here, this is how he showed up. This is, these are the people he came to, the ones he first notified. And he was showing us that, that God hadn't come for some of the people. He'd come for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're strong or weak, educated or common, influential or totally anonymous, in crowd or excluded, none of those make any difference whatsoever. Those things, they don't get you to the front of the line, and they also don't push you to the back of the line. They don't matter. And, and that's, that's what we see. The angel, he told the shepherds that this news about Jesus, he said it was good news that will bring great joy to all people. He came for us all. The Titanic, it, it had life rafts for about a third of the people on board. And that ship, it was never supposed to sink, but when it did, it was almost exclusively the wealthy and the influential who would get a seat, who would have a spot reserved for them on one of those life rafts. But that's not how Jesus came. When he showed up here, he came with a lifeboat for everyone. He came here to rescue us all. He didn't come here for a special class of people or, or, or for those who had it all together. That's not how he came. He came here for anyone and everyone who was seeking him. That's how he came. And this is not just how Jesus was born. You also see when you study his life like we did this fall, you see this is how he lived as well. A, a woman who had an embarrassing string of failed marriages in her past and who currently was, was living with her boyfriend, Jesus, he entered into her life and, and he gave her hope in him. And all she needed was a willing heart. A, a wealthy man who who had every single neighbor who lived around him hating him because he did the dirty work of Rome, because he was lining his pockets, most likely with the proceeds that he made for Rome. Jesus, he walked into that man's home. And, and because this man was open to the work of God in his life, Jesus gave him a new heart. And he gave him a new perspective, a new way of seeing life. Jesus, when he was here, he earned himself a nickname while he was on earth. Friend of sinners. And that wasn't supposed to be a compliment. You see, when Jesus came in the flesh, he shows us in the way that he came, he shows us in, in how he showed up, that he had brought a lifeboat for everyone. He was here for every single person. Only one stipulation. You have to step into that boat. That's it. Have you done that yet? He brought a boat just for you. All you have to do is, is say, Jesus, I, I believe you came to save me, and you are the only one who can save me. That's it. But then watch, when, when we become Christians, when, when we accept this gift, when we step into that lifeboat that he brought for us, 
when we do that, what you see is that our stories, they become like his story. They start to sound a lot like his story. They read like his. And when we become Christians, then we are sent on the same mission that Jesus came on. And how do we know that? Because Jesus said so. He said in John chapter 20, verse 21, he said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You see, he sends us out to all two. He sends us to everyone. And just as Jesus came to be like us so he could rescue us, now we become like him. And so what do we do? We are sent out. Right? We are, we are possessed by this love of God. And we can't help but spill that love and, and that care and that kindness on, onto the people who are around us as well. Right? And they get to know the power and the love and the hope and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through us. That's what happens. He sends us out to all too. And just like with Jesus, God had all of eternity to plan out, to decide where he was going to write you into the story. And he could have chosen any time and any place and into any family that he wanted. It, it was all open to him. And he has chosen for you to live right here, right? He has written you into the story right now. He gave you, he decided on the family that you were born into. He decided that just for you. And I tell you, you know, the hardest, you know, the hardest place to love with the love that God has shown us, the hardest place to really do this is not with some stranger on the other side of the world, right? Who are the most difficult people to love? That same family that God gave you, that family that he wrote you into, right? the family you were born into, the family that you have now, that's, that's the hardest place to really love in the way that God has loved us. G.K. Chesterton, he said, I don't know, 100 years ago, he said, look, the most exciting, the, most, the greatest adventure, the, the most challenging place in the Christian life uh, is not in some exotic place in a faraway land. Now, he said, the greatest adventure of your life is going to be found, it's waiting for you in the living room of your family, the family God wrote you into, the, the family you were born into. God has placed you in your family, and he's got you there on that mission that Jesus came on as well. And so think about this. You know, just imagine this. Thanksgiving, it was 10 days ago, right? Just imagine how Thanksgiving would have gone if instead of judging your family like, like it is so easy to do, you would come in and you decided, you know what? I'm just going to love my family this year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I mean, think about how different that celebration would have been if that was the attitude that you had brought in. If you'd said, I'm going to stop judging, I'm going to stop criticizing, and I'm, I'm going to love them. It probably would, would have been a very different day for you, maybe for everyone there possibly, right, if we'd gone in with that attitude. And Christmas, it's, it is 21 days away, right? Christmas is coming. And, and as you get ready for that Christmas celebration, what if you decided to, to do this, to do it differently than you've ever done it before, or at least maybe in a very long time. And you say, you know what, I'm going into this Christmas, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it differently. I'm not going to go in and try to convince anyone of how they're messing up in life or trying to change anyone. I'm not going to go in with gloves on, you know, ready for another fight. No, I'm going to go into this Christmas the way Jesus came into that first Christmas. I'm going in armed only with an unassuming love, a a generous kindness, a gentle word, a warm smile. What if you did that? 
You said, I'm going to love my family for who they are and where they are. I'm not going to try to make them into who I think they ought to be. Wouldn't that be a different Christmas for you? You see, for too many years, I, I just found it so much easier to criticize than, than to be gracious with my family of origin, with much of them. And, and I found it, that, that I was looking for, for the bad. And I tell you, when you're hunting for the bad, you will never stop finding it, will you? But then God showed me something. Did you know that I can also be pretty hard to be around sometimes? I know. I was surprised too. God, God showed me that I needed as much grace as they needed. God showed me that, that all of that judgment that I had brought into those family gatherings, that, that if I could let that go, you know, and I could allow him to begin to change the, the criticizing into, into love for them, you know, into grace for them, that, that amazing things could happen. And, and I stopped, as God began doing that in my life, I stopped being a critic, and I became something so much better. I finally became an Ebling. You see, that's, that's what God desires for us. And, and when I started doing that, that's, that's when family gatherings, uh, they changed for me. And, and probably for everyone else there too, right? So what do you say? You know, if, if this is the way you've approached those family gatherings for a while now, what do you say, would you consider changing the way you move into those, to those living rooms and into those celebrations? Would you exchange the critique and the judgment for a love and a grace for that family? Would you consider doing that? Look, the chances are good that they are not going to change. But what if you did? That could be glorious. I'd like to close with a story about a man who was so possessed by the love of God that, that it compelled him to go out and to show that same love to others. His name was Father Damien, and, and he was a Belgian priest, and he accepted an assignment to go to a small island in the Pacific. And, and while that sounds like a really nice vacation, the reason he chose this little island is because it was exclusively inhabited by a colony of lepers. And, and what, what you see is that after Fa Father Damien got to this island, soon after he'd arrived, that this little island, it began to change. When he showed up, it was an unsanitary, lawless place. There was really no work happening on, on this little island of lepers. But then after Father Damien showed up and, and he began his ministry there, things started to change drastically. You saw that these little shacks became painted homes. The laws began to be enforced. And then you saw there were, there were farms and there were schools that were established for the first time. And here is why that little island and those people were changed so drastically. It's because Father Damien, when he showed up and when he immersed himself in the lives of those people on that island, he decided, he made this conscious decision that he was not going to keep a safe and comfortable distance from them. No, he, he, he got to know their language. He, he learned to speak to them in their own language. He got to know them personally. He ate out of the same bowl with them. He hugged these people that nobody else would touch. He bandaged their open wounds. And then he dignified them by placing his hands on them and praying for them, even as they were dying. 
with his own hands. He, he built over 200 coffins so that these people would know that someone cared for them in life and in death. And, and as you can imagine, these lepers, they, they adored Father Damien for this. They were transformed by the ministry of this saint. And then one day, after Father Damien had been on this little island for about 12 years, he stood up to preach on a Sunday morning just like he always had. But on this sermon, he began with two words. We lepers. A jolt ran through the place because they realized that this man who had immersed himself in their lives, who had stepped down into the mess with them, who had chosen to live just like them, he was now one of them. And just as Father Damien had come to share his life with these lepers, he would now die with them. And sure enough, about three years later, after Father Damien had been on this, this small Pacific island for about 15 years, he died. And then they buried him on that small Pacific island. You see, when your soul has been captivated by the love of Jesus Christ, when, when you, you fully comprehend that he chose to come down here, to, to step into our turf, to be with us, to become like us, and he immersed himself in the mess of our lives, when you, when you get the enormity of that truth, you are compelled to go out and to show others that same love. You have no choice. Something in you, there's this unstoppable desire to go out and to do the same. And to go out to, to be with people that you might not otherwise choose to be around because you know that you can no longer keep your distance. You can no longer stay safe and exclusive and judgmental. You can't do that any longer. When you're possessed by the love of God, it pushes you out there to, to love others and not to say those people, but to say we lepers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you uh, this Sunday morning and uh, as we reflect, Father, on the fact that you wrote yourself into our story, you came to be with us and to be like us, Lord, that you might be able to rescue us. Father, our, our hearts are filled with with your grace and your love. And, and Lord, it's so obvious, you couldn't have been any clearer, Father, that you, you desired so deeply to help us, to, to save us, to love us, because you showed up. And, and Father, I ask that you would give us that same courage, that same humility, that same love, as you move us out to our families, to our friends, to others, Lord, who need your love. We ask that you would do that, Lord. Would you give us what we need, Father, and help us to know, to believe that we have all we need to do that very thing, Lord, to go out just as you came to us. We thank you, Father. We praise you. I pray that you would enjoy our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.